0: Acts chapter 4. Hopefully as uh, we look into God's Word this morning, we'll see an explanation of why it is that those, some of those psalms that we sing have a strange mixture of tears and joy in uh, the pain that they're experiencing in their hearts, and yet in a total confidence in God's provision for them. Acts chapter 4, the sermon we're going to be Uh, listening to here is titled, The Fellowship of His Sufferings. Let's begin reading at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that uh, you would enable us to worship you through this word and to have our lives more and more sanctified week by week as we seek to yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit and what your word has to say. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it, us to be not only hearers but doers of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> On September 29 of this year, the Anti-Defamation League, the B'nai Barith uh, Organization, issued a scathing attack upon the Southern Baptist denomination for speaking, uh, doing things that were unthinkable. And what was the crime that they had engaged in? It was engaging in Jewish evangelism. Now, of course, it's not a crime, but uh, the ADL would love to see it uh, criminalized here in America. And they did that in the name, they say, of pluralism and tolerance. It's an amazing thing how pluralism and tolerance can uh, lead eventually to persecution. Uh, They consider evangelism of Jews to be racist and to be anti-Semitic. By the way, Israel uh, has uh, made this a a crime. It's been a crime actually for a number of years, I think through the late 70s. But four years ago, uh, they... Uh, were really, really tough on tourist organizations. And they said to these people, if anybody so much as hands a track to a Jew, they can face up to five years in prison. I mean, they're trying to be really serious about this right now. And, uh, of course, this is uh, the policy in uh, Muslim countries and communist countries. I think some of those tourists wondered, boy, what kind of a tourist industry is this? You know, first thing out, they're warning us, don't even so much as hand a tract out. But this has been the way it has been for centuries that many people who are outside of Christ want those who are in Christ to be totally silent to keep their faith within their closet. And of course, 2,000 years ago, we find in verse 17, that's exactly what the Jewish leaders wanted to do Uh, to make them be silent. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Verse 18, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. What do you do when you receive threats from other uh, people, threats that you better be quiet about your Christian faith. Uh, in Israel, 50 Christian organizations kind of buckled to the pressure and said, well, we will promise that we will not engage in evangelism and make sure that none of our people engages in evangelism. Um, there is enormous pressure upon Christians to keep Christianity in the closet. Pluralism in America, is going to produce uh, more and more similar kinds of pressures. Uh, You're already seeing it uh, this year when uh, some organizations have said, saying uh, Merry Christmas is a hateful speech. Hate speech, I think, is what some people called it, which is a bizarre concept. Whether you believe in Christmas or not, kind of a, a weird statement. And obviously, right now, we don't have the civil government breathing... Uh, down our necks, but even such a simple thing as peer pressure can make people ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, it just grieves me, but I succumb to this sin over and over again. I clam up, I don't want to say anything, whether it's uh, statements in, in terms of politics or about God's law or this or that. I just keep silent. How can I be more bold? And I've given them various... Uh, Instructions from God's Word, but this passage has three things that I think enabled the early church to be bold. And the first one is the fellowship of suffering in verse 23, the fellowship of prayer, verses 24 through 30, and the fellowship of the Spirit, verse 31. Uh, I want to look at all three points. Today, I only want to look at the first point, though. We're not going to get very far. We didn't finish this passage last week. We won't finish it this week either. Uh, The fellowship of suffering. And actually, before we get to the fellowship of suffering, I want to point out how Luke hints at a transfer, a fellowship from one group of people to a fellowship with another group of people. So point number one is that there is a fellowship. Verse 23, and being let go... They went to their own companions. And you'll see in the New King James there that the word companions is in italics. That means that it's not in the original. They're supplying a word to try to draw out some of the meaning that is there. But actually, their own in the Greek is, is even stronger than that. That does carry out some of the uh, meaning of the term, but it's even stronger than that. Many times it is used to refer to your biological family, and by extension to your race. And so it's used of the Jews, of Israel, of the people of God. In fact, the NIV translates it, they went to their own people. And I think that captures the real strength of that phrase there, they went to their own people. Now any Greek person who was reading this passage might scratch his head and say, now wait a shake, aren't the Jews their own people? Because that's the strength of that phrase. And what Luke is saying here is, no, according to God, they no longer are their own people. Maybe at one time they were, but Luke is distinguishing these apostles and the church from the nation of Israel. And um, in the first three chapters, we have already seen that God was establishing a new Israel, with 12 tribes and 12 princes ruling over those tribes. Those were the apostles. And 120 men, which was the minimum quorum for establishing a new community. And uh, the, uh, throughout the epistles, the church is called the true Israel, and the Jewish nation is called Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, the enemies of God. The book of Revelation twice refers to Israel as a synagogue of Satan. And in chapter 11, verse 8, calls Jerusalem the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, where is Jesus crucified? It was in Jerusalem, right? But he's saying Jerusalem really is being treated by God as if they were the same thing as Sodom and Egypt. In other words, they were heathens and publicans. They were excommunicated uh, by the Lord. And by the way, the Jewish leaders treated the church as the same way. It's kind of like they're both excommunicating each other. But uh, in John 9, verse 22, it says, For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And so they had already cast the Christians out of the Jewish synagogue. There were two denominations, both of which were claiming to be the true church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, the true Israel, and... Um, in John 12:42 it says nevertheless even among the rulers many believed in him but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And so the Jewish unbelieving synagogue had excommunicated the church and we saw that in Acts chapter 2 <clears throat> God had established a new denomination and declared the old one to be apostate. And by the way, I think that this is the only biblical, valid reason for making a denomination, having a separate existence as denominations. It's discipline in reverse. And if the issues that keep denominations apart are not worth disciplining a person over, they are not worth keeping apart. I think there's far too much denominationalism out there. Now, there are some denominational splits where there are things, you treat them as believers, but the things that split them really were worth uh, being disciplined over. But when a denomination becomes so corrupt that the faithful are a tiny minority, they can't exercise discipline, can they? So, what the Bible says is, come out from among them and be separate, and by their act of coming out, God is saying, in effect, these are the ones who are staying true to the faith. They are the continuing church, and their declaration of coming out is saying that those who have been left behind are treated as heathens and publicans, in a sense. They've been excommunicated. It was an act of separation. And so, in the first century, that's what happened to the church. The church from Acts 2 and on does not recognize the leadership of the Sanhedrin as being a legitimate leadership. They have their own church leadership. Now, Jews for Jesus and other messianic organizations have been accused of being anti-Semitic because their first loyalty was to Christ, which is a bizarre accusation because these organizations are 100% Jewish, you know, they're made up of Jews. And we are many times accused of being anti-Semitic. They say, oh, you've got a replacement theology, you know, where the Gentile church replaces the the, the Jews as a nation. And that is wrong for three reasons. First of all, the early church was 100% Jewish. Remember, it was the remnant of Israel that had been set aside. And uh, how can Jews be said to be anti-Semitic? It doesn't make sense. Secondly, the separation was religious, not ethnic. It was much the same as what happened under Babylon when Israel was cast into Babylon and the Israel that stayed in the land was treated as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Israel that was in exile, not all of them, but the remnant that were believers, they were considered by God the new nation of Israel. They were called the... Uh, the the little sanctuary and the little temple, and so they were they were treated by God as being uh, the uh, the Israel of God. And by the way, even in the Book of Esther, Gentiles, when they believed, were said to become Jews. So it was not an ethnic issue at all. Jews and Gentiles in the Book of Esther. Uh, were religiously brought together into one church. And the church in Acts was the olive tree off of which many but not all Jews were broken off and into which later on, but not here, later on, many Gentile branches would be grafted in. And the third thing that we would say, and Jews for Jesus and others would say, is, hey, when a Jew embraces their Messiah, Jesus Christ, then they become one of their own, right? Their own... Uh, people. So it's not exclusionary in that sense at all. And there are many converted Jews who have been cut off from their families, disowned, and it grieves them. They love their families. It's not like they want to be separated from them, but loyalty to Christ takes precedence. In a very real sense, Christians are your own people in a far higher degree than any other relationship because they will be your own people throughout eternity for millions of years. And um, that first phrase then I think is very significant. Being let go, they went to their own. So point number one, because of our union with Christ, there is a fellowship to which they could go. Point two, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time, this fellowship is a fellowship of suffering. The apostles take their experience of suffering to the church Being let go, they went to their own and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Didn't leave anything out. They poured out their whole story to them. And I think even today, we should have the same attitude. God does not uh, believe that believers uh, should have to face the pains and the persecutions that they go through all on their own. When one member suffers, all of the members suffer with them. Verse 24 shows that the church takes this on as their own grievance. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said. And so the church uh, takes these threats against the apostles as threats against themselves. Why? Because they think the apostles are so cool? Well, it might have been some of that, but I think there was a far more profound reason that they do so, and it's because of their union with Christ. Look at verse 27. In that verse, they see this ultimately as being an attack against Jesus. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. And so they rightly interpret Psalm 2 as saying that when the church suffers... Christ suffers when the church comes under attack Christ is coming under attack when the church is conspired against Christ is being conspired against There is such a union between Christ and the church that it produces a fellowship of suffering and when we by faith enter into that it enables us to face that suffering with joy like these apostles did now I don't want this to be just a theoretical exercise for you And so this morning, I want to dig really deep into this. What in the world is it about this fellowship of suffering that enabled these people to pray with such confidence like we saw last week? And what is it about this fellowship of suffering that Acts 5, verse 41 can say, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer? Uh, What is it that makes them able to do that? What enabled Paul and Silas, after they had been beaten and their backs, you know, with those scourges are bleeding, and they're sitting in jail singing hymns of praise to God and counting it great joy that they could suffer for his namesake? What is it that enables that? In Philippians 3.10, Paul gives as his life passion, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, I think all of us can understand his passion to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. That's a great concept. But he is just as passionate about knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings as he was about the first part. Why? Why? Well, what I would like to do this morning is take a long rabbit trail from uh, Acts chapter 4 and look at this subject of the fellowship of sufferings because unless we understand this concept, there are a number of passages that are coming up in the book of Acts that just will not make sense to you. They will not make sense to you unless you understand this. And so I figured this is probably as good a time as any in which uh, we could get into the theology. Let's start first with how Christ has fellowship with our sufferings, and I think that'll help us to understand how we can have fellowship with his sufferings. So let's look at that first, Uh, Acts 9 and verse 4. Now Saul's been persecuting the church. Christ confronts him on the road to Damascus, and in verse 4 it says, He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That ought to seem a little bit strange because Saul was persecuting Christians, but what the scripture indicates is because of the union that Christ has with his body, the church, when those Christians were being persecuted, Christ was being persecuted. When they suffer, Christ was suffering. And that phrase, by the way, is repeated six times in the book of Acts, so it's obvious God wants us to think about it a little bit. Why are you persecuting me? Now, here's a question that may come to your minds. Jesus has been glorified. Jesus is in heaven. How can Jesus suffer? Is not heaven a place of bliss? And we would say, yeah, heaven's a place of bliss and of comfort, but also mixed with that bliss and comfort is some pain emotionally and some tears. In fact, according to Isaiah and according to the book of Revelation, it's not until the end of history that the remembrance of all of the former things is washed away. The new heavens and the new earth is brought in. And at that point, he says, every tear will be wiped away, Isaiah 25, 8, Isaiah sixty-five nineteen, Revelation 7, verse 17, Revelation 21, verse uh, 4, Luke 16, and many other passages indicate that saints who have died and have gone to glory, who have gone into paradise, are perfectly familiar with their past history. They're perfectly familiar with what's going on down here on earth. They know what is happening. In the last day of history, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and every memory, everything that we have ever done in life will flash before our eyes. And then to our relief, it'll all be taken away because Christ has borne uh, the punishment for those sins But we will be judged on judgment day for all of those things. And it's only after that that every tear will be wiped away. Now, some people have a real hard time with this. They say, that just doesn't sound right. How can there be tears in heaven? That just doesn't sound like. I don't want to remember what's uh, happening on earth uh, when I am in heaven. But because the saints as well in glory share in the fellowship of sufferings, there are times that they... Pray for us from heaven and they weep with us from heaven. Look, for example, with me at Revelation chapter 6. These are the souls of dead saints who are now in heaven and they're troubled about something. They're bothered. Even though they're in heaven, they are troubled. Great tribulation has just begun, there's more that's yet to come, and these saints are interested in what is happening. And if you look at verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. There was still much about which to be troubled. There was still much to cry about and to complain to God about because they recognized there is still opposition to Christ on the earth. And His kingdom continues uh, to be opposed. God tells them they have to wait a while because there are still going to be more fellow servants who are going to suffer on the earth. And so you see these souls being comforted in chapter seven, verses 13 through 17. And in the last phrase of that chapter, it indicates at some point, God is going to wipe away all tears from their eyes. But that does not happen until Revelation 21 verse four, when God brings in the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, they give glory to God in chapter 11 for God's wrath. And in the chapters that follow, the saints pray for God's judgment. They're aware of what's happening on the earth. They glory in God's judgments. They're praying for His judgments. And then when God's judgments come upon the earth, these saints in heaven have things like this said to them. Revelation eighteen twenty. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. He's talking to saints in heaven. Now in chapter 19, great multitude of saints are giving this long speech that reflects on the sins on the earth, the judgments of God, the victory that Christ is gaining on the earth, and they're praying for the advancement of his kingdom on the earth. They are very active Participants in what is happening here on planet Earth. Why? Because they have fellowship with us. Hebrews 12 says, "We have fellowship with them." It says "We've not come to Mount Zion, I mean Mount Sinai, but we have come into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. We've come to them, he says. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We have fellowship with them. They have fellowship with us. And, of course, the book of Revelation indicates that Jesus himself, even though he is a a glorified man and he's also God, it says that in heaven he is grieved, he is angered, he rejoices, he expresses the whole gamut of emotions. Revelation 19:15 says of Jesus, "'Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, "'that with it he should strike the nations, "'and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. "'He himself treads the winepress "'of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God.'" We misrepresent heaven as it presently is if we think of the people up there, you know, on lawn chairs, sipping iced tea, and just totally oblivious to what's happening here on earth, as if they're uncaring of what's happening on earth. No, they very much care about what is happening on planet earth. They are grieved over earth's rebellion, they have joy mixed with sorrow, and so both Christ. And the saints in heaven share, in some sense, in our suffering. And so 2 Corinthians 1.5 can say this, For as the sufferings of Christ are abounding, and he's using the present tense there, he's saying right now, Christ is suffering, and there's an abundance of sufferings he is presently going through. But then he tells us how Christ suffers. It's not just in the absence of us. It says, For as the sufferings of Christ are abounding in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So he was experiencing not only Christ's suffering in us, but the supernatural consolation of Christ. Why? Because of the fellowship of the Son that we have been called into. 1 Corinthians nine. But God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this may seem a little fuzzy right now. I'm building this theology step by step, and this is such an important theology to the persecuted church. In China, they really understand. They can identify with the Psalms that we finished singing earlier, both the joy as well as the weeping, watering our couch with tears. They can identify with that. So I want you to turn with me next to Matthew chapter 25. This records a speech that Christ will make at the end of history, Matthew 25, uh, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, "Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me food; I was thirsty and you gave me drink; I was a stranger and you took me in; I was naked and you clothed me; I was sick and you visited me; I was in prison and you came to me." Now keep your finger in there, but I want you to notice the plural. I mean the pronouns "I" and "me." Is Jesus lying? Well, obviously not. Even the suggestion would be blasphemy. He only speaks the truth, which means Jesus had to, in some way, be there. He had to be in that prison. He had to be in those uh, situations with the believers. John Flavel, one of my favorite Puritan writers, spends several pages giving exposition of this and other passages dealing with our union with Christ and all of the implications of it, and he says it is supernatural. It is immediate. It is fundamental. It is efficacious. He goes through all of the different aspects, and you begin reading these Puritans on the union with Christ that we have, and you begin to realize this enables us to be ushered into the whole life of Christ and Christ to be entering into the whole life of the believer. Notice, too, the language of suffering here. He is naked, sick, and in prison when we are naked, sick, and in prison. And I think this is exactly what Paul means in that controversial passage, Colossians 1.24, when he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, he is not saying that Christ has to suffer more in order to atone for our sins. On the cross, he says, it is finished. That has been completely and forever dealt with, but what it does mean is Jesus has not finished suffering. God has ordained that his suffering would continue after the cross and that we, in some way, have a part in that. Uh, He does his suffering through his body, the church, so we are a part of his sufferings. We fill up the sufferings. And until the last suffering of Christ is finished, his sufferings are lacking. His afflictions are lacking. We're filling up what is lacking. That is exactly, I think, what Paul is talking about. Now going on in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? They're just mystified by this. And John Flavel, when he caught... Is it Flavel or Flavel? Flavel, thank you. I don't want to keep mispronouncing it. Did I mispronounce, mispronounce? (laughs) (laughs) That was fine, okay. John Flavel said that this is an indication of how little saints on earth know about this mystical union that he has ushered us into. Because even in heaven, many saints are going to say, really? When did that ever happen? He is saying, we do not have, and until we get to heaven, we probably will not have uh, even a remote idea, comprehend, how inextricably bound up our lives are with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Flavel says, we must meditate ever more deeply on this subject of union with Christ so that we will not be a part of that company who says, really? When in the world did that ever happen? He says, as we understand the dimensions of this union with Christ it will enable us to rejoice in suffering. It will enable us to enter into the life of Christ in a way that we have not comprehended previously. And I think this is why Paul said, as his life goal, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Philippians 3, verse 10. It is to the degree that we know Jesus that we are enabled to enter into knowing the power of his resurrection. And it's to the degree that we have experienced the power of his resurrection that we are enabled to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. Continuing on, Matthew 25, verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, there are a few other passages we could look at in which Christ suffers with us. He grieves with us. He sympathizes with us on occasion. He is angry on our behalf. But if Christ suffers with us, that means, that makes our sufferings take on a whole new meaning. And I want to delve a little bit into that. We know that for Christ, His sufferings lay up an increasing glory. And to the, as Christ's sufferings increased, so did the measure of God's grace to sustain Him in the midst of those sufferings. And so F.F. Bruce says, "...sufferings for Paul are for him the indispensable conditions of identification with Christ in glory. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory." Romans 8 verse 17. So it gives a whole new meaning to our suffering. Secondly, What it does is it gives a whole new perspective on identifying with the sufferings of other believers. When we fail to weep with those who weep, what we are doing is we are failing to weep with Christ because Christ identifies with that weeping. Um, We are denying our fellowship in Christ's sufferings. He's grieving, and we're just uncaring. And to the degree that we fail to identify with Christ in His suffering... To that degree, we have failed to enter into the personal experience of Christ's comfort, his joy, and his glory. Now, I can see, the more I've studied out this, uh, this theology of suffering, I can see why it is that some of the believers, not totally, but why some of the believers in, in China are almost addicted to suffering for Christ and why many people in the early church grieved when they were not able to be martyred for the cause of Christ. They had such a, a longing to be entering into everything that Christ was experiencing. Um, some of these Chinese have begged us not to pray that their sufferings would stop. And they said, when we were in jail, when we were being persecuted, we were ushered into such a close sense of the sweetness of Christ That we want more. We want more of him. And all of the suffering is worth what we experience when we are drawn so closely into experiential union with Christ. If this is a mystery to you, it's because this is not academic. You will never understand what this is about until you actually enter into the experience of it. People are mystified that Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I I am strong. That's 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 12. Now, I want you to notice he is not a masochist. Even though, in context, he is referring to affliction that occurs in his flesh, and even though he takes pleasure of all things in infirmities, in reproaches, and needs and persecutions and distresses. He does so first of all, for the sake of Christ, secondly, so that he can experience Christ's strength and power. That's the thing that he is longing for, Christ's strength and power, and thirdly, because of the first phrase of verse nine. And he said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness," as Second Corinthians 12:9 through10. There is something about this fellowship of sufferings that made the saints in the first century take pleasure in them because it drew them into the sweetness of Christ. And once you have tasted of that, you want to keep going back for more and more and more. Let me read you 2 Corinthians 1, verses 5 through 7. I'm going to read this from the NIV. Now, let me give you some examples of how it is that we can share in the sufferings of Christ, how it is we can share in the sufferings of others. First of all, just as Jesus suffered, was pained in his heart in John chapters 8 and 9, when he saw his father vilified, when he saw his father defamed and failing to be honored, misrepresented, so too we should be pained in our hearts when we see the name of the Lord taken in vain, when we see Him vilified, when we see false doctrine, that kind of suffering brings us closer into the heart of Jesus and manifests Him living through us. Our Lord always suffered in the presence of sin, and it has been given to you to face the same anger, and pain, and grief, and sorrow that he did when he was confronted with a world of sin. Charles Spurgeon said, If men never swore in the streets, we should not so often be driven to cry to God to forgive their profanity. If you and I could always be shut up in a glass case and never see sin or hear it, it might be a bad thing for us. But if, when we are compelled to see the wickedness of men and hear their curses and revilings, we can also feel that God's Word is quickening us, even by our horror at sin, it is good for us, though it is exceeding grievous to tender hearted, pure, and delicate minds who dwell near to God. Now, in this sense, knowing Christ in the fellowship of His sufferings is an evidence of how close to Him we are. If cursing, If false doctrine, if abortion, if communism does not pain us, does not grieve us, does not cause inward suffering in our hearts when we are confronted with it face to face, it's an indication we do not know Jesus very well. It's an indication for sure that we have not entered into the knowledge of the power of his resurrection and of the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul wanted to know Christ so well He wanted to enter into the power of his resurrection so fully that all Christ experiences, both his joy as well as his sufferings, were also entered into by himself. Now, another way in which we can enter into the fellowship of his his sufferings is when our own personal sin grieves us and makes us mourn. The last phrase of Paul's life goal verse was that he would be conformed to Christ's death. Let me read that again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Philippians 3, verse 10. When we take our sins as seriously as Jesus took our sins, when we die to our sins, we are crucified to our own flesh, then we are feeling concerning our sins something, a small degree to which Christ suffered over our own sins. H.C.G. Mool said, The partnership of his sufferings, that deep experience of union with him, which comes through daily taking up the cross in his steps for his sake and in his strength, was growing in conformity with his death. Now keep in mind uh, that, that we're focusing today on fellowship of his sufferings, but Vincent is absolutely right when he says this, being in Christ involves fellowship with Christ at all points, his life, his spirit, his suffering, his death, and his glory. I've been focusing on the fellowship of sufferings because that's the one we tend to neglect. That's the one we have a hard time understanding. Another way in which we can enter into the fellowship of his sufferings is when we weep over the lost. We weep over a lost world like Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Paul had so entered into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings that in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, he says this, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief, continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He had so entered into the heart of Christ by God's Spirit drawing him close that he had this same kind of a self-sacrificing love for the loss that Christ had when Christ was willing to be accursed from the Father so that we could be saved. That's what the Spirit was producing in him. You'll never understand this simply by reading theology. This was a supernatural thing that God's Spirit ushered Paul into as he pushed Paul closer and closer to the heart of Christ. To repeat, I think this is what Paul meant when he said in Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. It means Christ's sufferings are not finished. He's not finished being afflicted. And when Paul suffers, he is sharing in; He is filling up the sufferings of Christ. Now, I know that I've drifted far from our text in Acts, which only hints on this subject, right? Uh, But I wanted to lay a groundwork for understanding many of the passages that come up later in the book of Acts, which do not make sense if you are not experientially knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let me have you turn to Philippians 3, verse 10. This is going to be the last passage that we turn to, and I've already uh, referenced it Uh, uh, sometimes in this sermon, Revelation chapter 3, 9 through 11. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones divides this passage up uh, into three points. He says that verse 9 speaks of knowing Christ in our justification. That's when we were first introduced to Christ. We were brought into his family. But that salvation leads to knowing him in sanctification, verse 10 that I might know him. This sanctification has various levels, which we're going to look at, but eventually this leads to knowing him in glorification at the time of the resurrection. So it's knowing him in justification, verse 9, in sanct- knowing him in sanctification, verse 10, knowing him in our glorification, verse 11, at the time of our resurrection. And the reason it's important to see that division is that Paul is talking about knowing Christ in an increasingly deeper way. Each of these stages draws our hearts deeper into the knowledge of Christ. Uh, Obviously, in the resurrection, when we see Christ face to face, we will know him in a way that we do not know him here on earth. Uh, It'll be a a magnificent entering into knowing him, but you know throughout eternity we're going to be knowing him deeper and deeper as well. But verse 10 is also an advance over the knowledge that Paul had at his conversion. Notice the word that. He knew Jesus at conversion and the purpose of that justification was that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He says, first of all, we need to know him, and he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers who already do know him. He's talking about himself as a person who was already saved and justified in verse 9. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's sort of like this. Why would you say that I might know him if you already know him? Well, it's sort of like uh, meeting a, a stranger at a train stop or maybe at some other place and you introduce each other you give your names and who you're married to and what kids you have and you start talking about each other and then you the guy has to leave and you say you know i really verse 9 but he is saying i want to know jesus better and our whole sanctification our whole life is involved in knowing him in a deeper and a deeper way that should be our goal but there's more to Christianity than simply knowing Jesus. Paul also wanted to know the power of his resurrection. This was an experiential power that works in us to sanctify us. It enables us to conquer sin. It illumines us to understand the Scriptures. It strengthens us. It brings healing. Ephesians 1, 19 through 20 is just an incredible verse. It prays that we might know Christ... And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That's the kind of power that is at work in us. Incredible. Now, here's the question. Do we really need that kind of power, the kind of power that raised Christ from the dead to be working at us? And I say, absolutely. Yes, you do. You need that power to be able to love your enemies. You need that power to be able to crucify and put to death the flesh which keeps raising up its ugly head. You need that power to conquer lust. You need that power to be able to overcome addictions. Otherwise, it's just a legal mortification, right? It's not the grace-filled mortification of sin. We need it. Paul had some physical infirmities and he said, even in my physical weaknesses, I'm experiencing this. Uh, 2 Corinthians twelve nine, uh, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take away that physical infirmity, uh, which is a great verse for showing it's not always God's will that we be physically healed. Sometimes he graciously gives healing. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think this is one of the biggest needs for the charismatic church is to develop a theology of suffering. It would really help to balance them, I think. We need this power. More to the point of this passage, we need his resurrection power to enable us to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings and to be conformed to his death in our sanctification. Lehman Strauss said this, No man is able to endure the fellowship of Christ's suffering who does not know the power of Christ's resurrection. But it is only as we know something of the fellowship of our Lord's sufferings that we can be certain we know anything of the power of His resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection is vitally and essentially related to the Christian's experience in this life. It is the power in us now that enables us to know Him in the fellowship of His sufferings. G. Campbell Morgan said, "'It is Christ in me that fills me with compassion. "'The measure in which my Lord lives in me, "'masters my life, dominates me. "'The measure in which I dare yield myself "'to the impulses of His indwelling "'is the measure in which I cannot look upon sinning men "'without suffering and desiring to reach out and help.'" Are you beginning to get a feel for what that is all about? If you are content merely to be saved, yes, you may be able to avoid a lot of the pain and and the fellowship of his suffering. But Christ and Paul is quite clear, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. The closer you are drawn by the Spirit of God into the heart of Christ, well, let's deal with the first half of the thing, yes, Truly, the more you're going to rejoice in God, the more you're going to enjoy life. In fact, Mark chapter 10 is very clear on that first half of that. Jesus said, "'Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time.'" Houses and brothers, I love this. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands uh, with persecutions. Ah! (laughs) Well, why can't he leave that phrase out, you know? We love the first part. We want to be able to enjoy life a hundred times more than we've ever enjoyed it before. But he throws in that little phrase, that curveball, with persecutions. Why does he do that? Well, I believe it is because intimacy with Christ ushers us into all that Christ is. Yes, his life, his power, his joy, his patience, all of those things, but it ushers us as well if we really are close to his heart, into his suffering. And if you are trying to escape from the pain of denying your flesh, denying self and following Christ, then you're also escaping from the joy of his empowering, his comfort, his faith. If you are trying to escape from the pain of weeping over a lost world by saying, I just can't work in those situations anymore, it pains my heart too much, then you are also escaping from His victory and His exaltation. If you are compromising in order to escape from slander, from hatred, from persecution, or even simple things like the shame of negative peer pressure, then you are also escaping from the power and the boldness that Acts chapter four talks about. And I'm going to just quickly sum up. Acts chapter four, they pray for boldness. In verse 29, they ask God to have the power of His resurrection working through him uh, through them. In verse 30, that, those are not intellectual concepts. They are intellectual, but they're not just. Uh, It's the reality of his resurrection power working through them. And in verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Brothers and sisters, do you long to know Christ so much that you are willing to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings? Do you want to see his power the power of his resurrection that Ephesians talks about, so at work in you that you will risk being that close to his heart that you're going to be pained, you're going to have his sufferings, whether outward sufferings of persecution or inward sufferings of heart. If we are ever to shake this world, we ourselves must be shaken. We must be filled with the Spirit. We must be knit to the heart of Christ from whom every blessing flows. And I want blessings in your lives. But I also want to tell you, you're never going to get the blessings if you reject the suffering. So my admonition to you this morning is do not avoid the fellowship of sufferings, whether it's manifested and taking on to yourself the sufferings of believers around the world, the sufferings of believers within the body whether it's suffering in terms of your own sanctification, do not avoid the sufferings of Christ. If you embrace the whole of Christ, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. You will be filled with that joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Father God, take my feeble, inadequate words, and I pray that they would have a lasting impact as they are true to your scriptures and the lives of this your people. And Father, I pray that you would more fully manifest the life of Christ in my life. It's a a shameful thing, Father, to have to preach on your word, on areas that I have so much to grow in. But Father, I, along with this congregation, want to know Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to not be held in the grip of the baubles and the things that captivate people's imaginations here on this earth. Help us, Father, to be driven with an eternal perspective. And help us, Father, to know the power of Christ's resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that we would be conformed to his death and living through his resurrection. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us and sanctify us and make us to be a people set apart, shaken by the presence of your Holy Spirit, and as a result, having living waters that flow out from us, to bring shaking to this world as you have said in hebrews that your purpose is now not to just shake a mountain but to shake the very heavens and the earth begin O oh god by shaking us i pray in christ's name amen